David Howard Jr. wrote of the book of Ezra, it is tightly packed with spiritual messages waiting to be extracted. It communicates a rich spirituality, including the importance of the spiritual disciplines of prayer and of fasting, of sacrificing, of reading the scriptures, and the importance of preaching and public assembly of God's people. There's much that we can learn from this book. And so let's learn from Ezra tonight. The name Ezra means God helps. God helps. Rabbinic traditions uh, see Ezra and Nehemiah as uh, one book by a single author, Ezra. The book is, uh, in the book are the narrations of the two returns, to the first two returns from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they are more than a half century apart, these two returns that are narrated in the book of Ezra. There will be a third return, there will be a third phase return, but that's narrated in the next book of the Bible, Nehemiah. Ezra was born while in captivity in Babylon, and he was in a line of priests that traced back to Aaron. It's interesting that Judah's deportation into Babylonian captivity was in three phases, and the return from captivity was in three phases. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invaded, and you remember reading this, and in, in, in took away Jehoiakim and the leading nobles, and Daniel would have been included in that group. That was the first phase of the deportation into Babylonian captivity. 5897 B.C., second Babylonian invasion... King Jehoiachin taken captive with, along with people of, of importance. And then the third uh, uh, stage in, in the deportation, 586 B.C., was the final deportation of Jerusalem. This was a sad and, and bitter thing. Zedekiah, king of Judah, broke an oath of allegiance to, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he uh, allied himself with Egypt. The Babylonians besieged Jerusalem then. It was a great bloodbath. Raising of Jerusalem resulted in the final deportation of Jerusalem. It was a sad and bitter hour. And then Israel, Judah, began to make up their neglected Sabbaths in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So three phases in the deportation. It's not covered in, our, in, our, in, our, in the book of Ezra, but it leads into it. Now, in, in the book of Ezra, though, the first two phases of the return, the return of the remnant also took three, again, three stages. The return to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel, the return under uh, Ezra later in order to bring revival to the people who were intermarrying pagan wives, and then a return to rebuild the walls, and that's narrated in in, under Nehemiah and narrated in in the book of, of Nehemiah. And this is great reading. Just how many of you have read Ezra t- uh, recently? Bill, that's quite a lot of reading. 14. Where were you? I was just trying to imagine what was 14 hours away from here. But anyway, that's personal. So anyway, yeah. And so book of Ezra is not hard reading. Ten chapters. Read it less than an hour. Um, and... Uh, but it, it's interesting because it begins in a fulfilled prophecy. Look at Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he's commanded me to 
to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This is kind of amazing, isn't it? This is Cyrus. I mean, what if you heard, this is a pagan king who says, it was God who gave me the authority I have, and God instructed me to build a house in Jerusalem, and I'm obeying him. And Isaiah, a, a, Cyrus is called God's shepherd, a pagan king. Does it make you nervous what's going on in the Middle East? Make anybody nervous besides Lois? Does it make anybody else nervous? Come on, work with me, people. Yeah. By the way, God bless you for being here tonight. You're, you're all right. Coming out here on a night like this. And I hope you get home safely. I think I looked at the radar. It looked like the storm is going to stop here while we're here. And so maybe we just relax a little bit. You'll be good going home. I trust that God will keep you safe. I just admire you for coming out tonight. I hope that I can be a blessing to you by just teaching the Word of God tonight. So God works in the most amazing ways. You know, God has his, in his promises. He, in, in Ezra 1, 1 and through 5 here, it's clear that God is, has made promises. He has his promises spoken by prophets. He has his promises written by prophets. They are timed with great precision. And then he does what he said he will do even when pagan people are in power. That's interesting what's going on in the Middle East and the Muslim world today. It's like, and, you know, the, the thugs are all moving around and changing, you know, they're, they're changing thugs in leadership, you know. And um, it's true here in America a lot of times, too. And, and so Christians, like, we could wring our hands and go, but the good guys, well, there aren't any good guys, you know. It's the bad guys are going to be overcome by other bad guys. And so we're kind of wringing our hands. And, and, uh, and in a time like this, it's great to study Ezra. God has got a, a prophetic time clock. He's the one who knows it. Sometimes he reveals the length of time. He's going to do something. Sometimes it's open-ended and he hasn't revealed it. But it's set in his mind. He's going to do what he's going to do. And he's going to use whoever he wants to use. He's in control. He's sovereign. He can use pagans. He can use Christians. It's pretty cool. I remember, uh, and this is a little part of the story I told before, but I'm going to add something for you tonight. Years ago I had a, I believe in visions. I think you've got to be really careful with them. But I, I believe that God, if you walk with God, I believe that sometimes in dreams and in visions that are vivid in your mind, God will remind you of something in his word. I, I just believe that. I believe it's happened to me a number of times. I believe that sometimes God will warn you in a very vivid dream or vision. If it's extra biblical or if it's contrary to the Bible, then you need to doubt that vision. But if it confirms what the Bible says, it might be good for you just to be wise and to pay attention. I, uh, we started a church in 1989, late in October 7th, 1989. And we didn't have a place to meet. And oh, how I wanted a place for our little church to meet. 135, 136 people. I wanted just a humble place for our church to meet. And I, I look at this great Paul, that God used you folk here to build, and and Pastor Grafe and the other pastors here to inspire and encourage people, and it just just amazes me. It's amazing that God would have allowed you all to build such a nice building, debt free for the glory of God. And I I'm pretty sure I never could have done that. And yet I get to preach every week. It's pretty cool. As we started the church, I I just 
thought, how are we ever going to have a building? And the men of the church, precious men, got together in Mark Boucher's basement. And they said, Pastor, we're gonna, we'll put up, we'll, get, we'll borrow. We'll borrow against our homes. And we'll build a nice building right on the edge of town, right on a thoroughfare. It'll be the, a nice church building. And I, I didn't feel like it was right to borrow uh, for that. And I said to the men that night, on a Monday night in Mark Boucher's basement, I don't want to offend you men. I appreciate your willingness to sacrifice, but I'd like to just trust God to give us a building that we need for this church. And the guys, I remember, they just looked at me and they, they didn't argue. And I remember Brother Mark, as a leader, Mark came here on a Christmas Eve once. He sat right back there. And uh, Mark said, well, Pastor, if that's what you feel God wants us to do, that's what we'll do. We'll figure out a way to get a building without borrowing. Uh, how are we going to do that? I had no idea. Nobody had any money. We're young families, no, no extra money. And I had a, a vision of a church building, and it was a white frame building in my mind. I just saw this white frame building, and I saw these families gathering in. It was just a simple preaching hall, and, and there's old white building in the country. And it was like in a dream in my heart, and I imagined just preaching together, and imagined gathering together. And I wish that I'd imagined a bigger building, but... One day, Mark called me, and he goes, Pastor, I think you need to drive out here. There's something I want you to see. There's a little Grange Hall, the Liberty Grange on Tucker Road, and the folks that are running the Grange are old. They're up in years. They only meet about once a month. In January, they have an oyster dinner. I don't know why people have oyster dinners. It sounds weird to me. And roast beef dinner would would be good. Strawberry shortcake, that would make sense. Oyster dinner didn't seem to make sense. And... So he said, but they're having trouble maintaining their building. They don't have restrooms in it, you know, and they don't have, but, but it's a pretty good size old building. And I remember we, we, we arranged to go out there and they, they, they gave us a hundred year lease for a dollar a year if we would improve the building and maintain the building. No borrowing, dollar a year. So we went in and, you know, I built a little office for myself, me and another guy, and I don't know how to build anything. It was a crack up. I built eight-foot walls, stood them up, and the ceilings were eight-foot six inches. <laughs> Bill, can you imagine building like that? It's like I figured the walls were eight foot, so I just built an eight-foot wall, stood it up, and we're like, hey, Tom, that's like six inches short. Like We should have measured. It's actually, <laughs> it was actually, if, you know, like if you're going to build something around here, send me calling, and then build what you're going to build. I'm going to leave something to the Lord. Hopefully he'll be a builder and we'll send him out. Anyway, we built a little nursery there. We built a little office. And um, the men got together and they put restrooms in the building. That was a big innovation. But what was so neat was the day we drove out, the day I drove out there and I, and I parked my car, it was like this is, the, this is the building I saw in my mind. This is the building I saw in my mind. And God did some neat things. People got saved and people got baptized and came to know the Lord really was a, a, a real ministry there, um, even though it was very modest. If you'd have seen it, it's very, very modest. But God saved people. I go back to Knox County every once in a while. I meet the people. They're, they're still saved. That's how it works, you know, if you really get saved. you Yeah. And um, it's even true with Nazarene people, same way. They, uh, anyway, um, I remember we were all working out the building. I was out there for moral support, trying to stay out of the way while the men actually did things. And, and um, one of the guys crawled up, in the, crawled up in the attic of the building. 
And a building, in the gable end of the building, there was a sign. A sign said Liberty Grange. And our church was named Community Bible Baptist Church. And we're going to put the sign on the outside of the building, Community Bible Baptist Church. And we're going to put a sign down by the road, Community Bible Baptist Church. One of the guys crawled up in there and he said, Pastor, come here, you need to see something. He took the sign, it was like a piece of plywood that was facing out. It obviously had been used before as a sign. And it had just been flipped around and they censored Liberty Grange on this side. But the original sign said, Hopewell Baptist Church. Hopewell Baptist Church. The Spearmans were people that lived in the area and knew everybody and they'd been around forever. So I drove down there and I said, do you know anything about the history of this church? I said, yeah, my grandmother was saved back when 70 years ago that church closed. We looked into it. We opened it in January. It closed for exactly 70 years. Pastor was involved in immorality, and the church closed. And 70 years later, God stirred up a group of people, Baptist people, to come back and start church in the exact same place, preaching the exact same gospel exactly 70 years later. He stirred up a vision in my heart. He put it all together it's pretty cool the way God works. And, and, and that's in a much bigger way. This is what's happened in the book of Ezra. God has set his people into Babylonian captivity. He set a time limit on it. He stirred up what he needed to stir up to bring the people back. And that's what he does here. Very, very beautiful thing. Let me give you just a little uh, thumbnail sketch here. Judah had been driven into Babylonian captivity. By the time of the return, Babylon had been conquered by Persia. Um, when you read the book of Ezra, you're going to see themes of God's providence, His sovereignty, His holiness, and significance of covenants. And you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. We'll, we'll see more on that later. Let me show you just a little simple overview in four stages. In chapters 1 and 2, you have the first return under who? Zerubbabel. And then you have a rebuilding. It's a rebuilding of what? A rebuilding of the temple. And then you have a second return sometime later, a generation later really more. Chapters covered in chapters 7 and 8. And this return was under Ezra himself. And in this return, he was cleaning house because the people had just... So it's like the first return was to rebuild. The second return was to revive the people. And a reform in verses chapters 9 and 10, you see that reform. So you have a little outline. That's kind of like a little outline of the book of Ezra. Return 1, chapters 1 and 2. Rebuilding, chapters 3 through 6. Return number 2, chapters 7 and 8. And reform. And these are this is just rich reading. There's just great stuff here. It's very. Now this chart, can, can you make this out? You can't, can't. Can you read this? Raise your hand if you can read this. I'm going to burn. All right, all right, yeah. Um, I just wanted to point out, I borrowed this chart. And here's why I want you to see this chart. I want you to see where um, you have here, uh, the, the first three are the deportation, timing, where it's covered in the Bible, prophets that spoke during that time, foreign emperors or rulers at that time. And, and then you have the, from 538 there, you see it in the, the year column, 538, first return from Babylon to Israel under Zerubbabel. And then you notice Haggai, Zechariah. In chapter 5 of Ezra, the, that's when these prophets 
minister, and they have their own Bible books, okay? Obviously, you knew that. That's where they go, as you can see. And then Esther is probably after the rebuilding of the temple and before the second return, and that's kind of where Esther goes. So you notice in these three Bible books, they go in there. I did another little chart on my own to show you this a little bit better. That's probably a better chart. Do you see it that way better? First return under Zerubbabel, the book that covers it is Ezra and Haggai. Obviously, that's in chapter 5, Zechariah chapter 5, but also in their books, the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. Then the temple rebuilt, 515. Obviously, these are B.C. years, right, before Christ. And then the book of Esther. And then the second return under Ezra, covered in Ezra. Third return under Nehemiah, covered in Nehemiah. And then the book of Malachi comes after that. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a bearing. Does that help you? It's a little bit of a bearing. Let's go in an overview, a little bit more detail. The first return led by Zerubbabel, chapters 1 and 2. It's a bit of a, kind of a bit of a repetition here. Um, chapters 1 and 2 cover that. And, wow, that's kind of small, isn't it? I've got to work on these things. There's in chapter 1, preparations for the return, and a big long list of names. In chapter 2, this is like, you ever see the baby name book? Like, pick a baby name out of this. Don't pick any baby names out of that, okay, just telling you. Chapter 2, list of those who returned. It is interesting to me that when people are faithless, when people are faithful, God makes records of these things. If you're an organized person, you've got to love these parts of the Bible because you see that there is just order in God's work. There, are, there is accountability the way money is handled in God's book here. There are, there are gatekeepers. There are serious ushers. There are serious singers, cymbal players, trumpet players. Again, you got this. The worship of God is handled in a very serious way. They take it seriously. And just horse around. It's not just all kind of like pickup. You know, it's, it's interesting to me. That's just, it's just some kind of new to my heart as I see this over again the way God wants. So you have in chapters 1 and 2 that first return. In chapters 3 through 6, the rebuilding of the temple. Um, and and uh, chapter 3, the rebuilding of the temple begins. You, you see there that the, the, there was a restoration of worship before the foundation of the temple is laid they're celebrating the feast of tabernacles they're making sacrifices they're instituting worship get the people back and start worshiping even before the temple was rebuilt in chapters four and five the rebuilding was halted by a hostile challenge this is interesting because god is moving for the people to go back and god wants the temple rebuilt but he still allows opposition to come you know we tend to go Okay, God wants me to do something. We get going and do it, and then there's opposition. We go, wah, wah, wah. You know, it's like, God, you have opposition. Ah, oh, shut up. Join the club. There's always opposition. There's always the evil one's always working. God weaves the worst and darkest things into his beautiful providence. And that's just, you have a picture of it right here. And you have people that actually are able to bring this to all. Then God brings in chapter 5, he brings these prophets in. The Bible says because of the word of the prophets, the ministry of the prophets, it kind of like lights a fire under the people. The people get going again. God raises up Darius, Darius, however you want to say his name. And, and as a result of that, there's some record-keeping that had gone on. The decree of Cyrus is found. This is like legal documentation. Darius says they find this legal documentation. These people have every right to do that. They're not just tax evaders. They have legal right to do what they're doing. And, and this legal document's brought forward, and people are able to go ahead and continue the rebuilding. It's pretty interesting stuff. 
And then chapter 6, the rebuilding is permitted and completed, as I mentioned. Chapter 7 and 8, the second return led by Ezra. And again, this is a revival. And what's the big problem here? The big problem that grieves Ezra is the people have disobeyed God, not in the Sabbaths now, but they've really disobeyed God in not recognizing the separation that they were commanded to have from the godless, wicked people in the land. They were actually allowing, they were taking wives from among the people in the land. They were allowing their sons to take wives. They were taking wives for their sons, and they were, taking, uh, they were allowing their daughters to marry, and, the, and specifically... God is going to go after, through the prophets and through Ezra and later through Nehemiah in a very direct way. Let's look at chapter 9 and verse 12. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land. Leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. God is consciously, continuously, and ever vigilant and conscious over who our children marry. And, And we're supposed to take responsibility for helping our sons and daughters find godly mates. And we're supposed to watch over that. There's a period of time in your life when you might not do other things, and you might just watch over that very, very wisely. It takes the wisdom of Solomon to do that. And it, ta- and it gets you on your knees. And that's the way God, I think, wanted it, for, wanted for it to be, that we would get on our knees. Do you see what's happening here? Nehemiah is going to be very direct about this. Ezra, this is a pattern throughout the Bible Choosing a mate is supposed to be a whole family operation. It's not supposed to be, you understand, and if you're like a single girl here and you're just like totally freaking out, I don't know if you have, and you're like, oh, pastor believes in like arranged marriages where guys get together in a good old boys club and they pick a husband for me. I do not believe that. You have patterns in the Bible where the, the woman has like a veto power, but, but it's not a decision that young men and women should make without consulting their parents and being wise and having an agreement. And this is just what the scriptures say very clearly throughout. It's very consistent. In First Corinthians chapter 7, it mentions it. We talk about the law of God. You honor your father and mother. How in the world can you honor your father if you marry somebody he doesn't approve of? That's not honoring. And that's one of the reasons why we have some of the problems that we have. So please, can I just say this as a pastor to you? And you can pray for me as I do this, you know. Let's watch over our daughters. You might not do something else for a while and just watch over your daughter. Our daughters are very precious to God. And our daughters are a mark for the devil. He wants, to, he wants to get them. And men, watch over your own heart. And then watch over your daughter in a very loving, gentle way. Spend lots of time with her. Take her out for coffee. Take her shopping if you must. Find your way into her heart. Help her along. Don't freak her out like you're like some kind of creep and you're not going to notice that she has a romance in her heart of desire. But just love her and watch over her. And with your sons, don't just let them go out into the world and, and, and uh, on their own, but help them and pray with them and make that a big part of your life. And I just think we should ask God to help us in this because it's a big deal for our children to marry, not just in the faith, but devoted, godly Christian people. And this is, you see this in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the big tension in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're marrying unbelieving people. And this is a horrible tragedy. And they get so serious about it, they're like pulling their beards out, and they're kicking people, and they're cursing people. Serious. 
So you might give that some thought. And then um, chapter 7, royal permission for the remnant to return. Chapter 8, return of the remnant. And then finally, chapters 9 and 10, the reform and the restoration of the people of God. Something interesting happens in chapter 10, 9 and 10, and that is that Ezra binds people to an oath to put away their foreign wives. It was a unique time, you know, from the very beginning, you know, when Jesus asked about divorce, and we'll talk about divorce next Sunday morning, so you can pray for me all week, because we just don't want to hurt people. And we don't want to drive people away. And Satan, people that have been divorced, and we've all been touched by divorce, and people that have been divorced tend to be very sensitive and easily offended sometimes. And, and yet, we don't want to offend our God by not teaching his word. And, and this is an epidemic in our time. And so we'll talk about this on Sunday morning. Jesus, when he's asked about divorce, says no divorce, no divorce. When he's pressed about it, why did Moses give a certificate of divorcement? What does he say? He, he says, and this is the Matthew, because there's two places in Matthew and nowhere else in the Bible where there's any exception given. He says from the beginning it was not so. He always goes back to creation, and he says we should be setting the bar there at creation. But in Ezra, you have putting away, you have divorcing of wives. Now, why is that? If you were Mormon, God forbid, if you were married Mormon, you know this, if you know anything about Mormon uh, belief, and you, let's say you're a Mormon woman and your husband doesn't convert because of their messed up theology that they got from a you know, a comic book um, that was, I'm being facetious, it wasn't a comic book, it was just, it wasn't as valuable as a comic book. The Book of, of Mormon um, was, was, was cribbed from the King, the good parts were cribbed out of the King James Bible, and the other parts were cooked up by Joseph Smith, probably to cover his desire to be immoral. There's a lot of false religion that's based in that. But if you were a, like a Mormon woman and your husband wouldn't convert, the Mormon church would encourage you to divorce him and marry somebody who was a Mormon believer. So while you're on YouTube, you see those nice little Mormon commercials, don't let them con you. That's a dark and demonic cult. And you should stay away from it. Of course, you, I'm sure you are. But so the question then comes up, is God saying you should divorce a person if they're not a believer? And the answer is no, and there maybe, let me just give you three reasons why. Number one, Jesus said no. Number two, Paul said no. Number three, Peter said no. Do you need more witnesses than Jesus and Paul and Peter in the New Testament writing under the authority of God, obviously? They are saying, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't divorce them. Jesus says it. Paul says it. Peter says it. But this is a unique circumstance where the people, God has an interest in preserving the messianic line. He has an interest in preserving the people who are going to bring the word of God. And he, and he cannot afford and will not allow them to intermarry with godless pagans and to dilute that messianic line. And so he makes an unusual allowance and says, put away these wives. Details about how they were cared for, how children were cared for, are not the subject of the book. The subject of the book really is actually taking responsibility by showing that it was from the leadership on down. The book ends, and if 
Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, then you've just got Nehemiah continuing his grief over this. But Ezra part, the Ezra part of the book ends in giving a list of the leaders who did this. But so what the book is saying is, hey, I, by my sovereign grace and power and sovereignty and providence and taking you out of Babylonian captivity to return you to the land, and as soon as you get back, you're marrying foreign wives from the top to the bottom. The leaders are doing this. And you're marrying foreign husbands. The leaders, pagans, godless people. And this is not a good thing. So we will be talking about this next, this Sunday morning about divorce about divorce remarriage, is, it, is there ever a biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage? We'll talk about this. And I don't believe that there is. But it's not something that we should be glib about. And so what about all the questions that come up? What if persons were divorced, remarried before they were saved? What if the person is the innocent party? What did the exception clauses in Matthew 5 and 19 mean then? if they don't mean that Jesus is giving an exception based on adultery, breaking of the marriage vows. What does that mean? So we're going to talk about that somewhere. So you can imagine it would be a pretty important morning as we, as we teach on that. And, um, but it's important. Let me just show you a theme here in Ezra before we go home tonight. And this theme is a beautiful theme. And it's, there's a phrase that's used throughout the book of Ezra. And Pastor Pine in choosing the songs, subtly wove this theme into the songs. And that was, the hand of our God, the good hand of our God. And I kind of subtitled our flyover of Ezra, the, the good hand uh, of our God. In other words, the hand of our God was upon them, the favor of God, the blessing of God. I, just want, to, I want to take you through a little quick uh, uh, another little quick pass through Ezra and just show you this beautiful theme. And I think I'll encourage you as you go into your work week. God stirs up a pagan king to do his will in Ezra 1, 1 and 2. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, in order to do what God promised to do and keep his covenant promises, he stirs up a pagan king and puts it into his heart to rebuild the temple. Interesting. Chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kings of the earth, the Lord God of heaven, has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. God stirred up his own people to do his will. Chapter 1, verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all whose spirits God had moved. You see, this book is not about people having ideas and doing them. It's about God Putting, the, putting in the hearts of people, stirring up the hearts of people to do things. Gossip, false reports cannot frustrate the purposes of God. If you skip to chapter 5 and look at verse 5, now you have gossip, false reports. Um, there, there, there's uh, reports of rebellion here. They can't frustrate God's sovereign purposes. Chapter 5, verse 5. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. Uh, Thomas Akempis said this, Regard not much who is for thee or against thee, but mind what thou art about. And take care that God may be with thee in everything thou doest. Have a good conscience, and God will defend thee. For whom God will help, no man's perverseness shall be able to hurt. 
Every once in a while, you know, you, you might just run into a real enemy. For whatever reason, somebody just gets against you. Have you had this ever happen to you? Anybody want somebody to get against you and you don't get why? Why is this? And, and you, it's tempting to say, God, well, I got, I'm just trying to do your will and you, I got people against me. Why is, what's this about? I can't, how can this be? And then I go to a, a, a thing like this. Regard not who is for thee or against thee, but mind what thou art about, and take care that God may be with thee in everything thou doest, for whom God will help no man's perverseness shall be able to hurt. Shimei's dust. Shimei. Remember him? David is falsely accused by Shimei. Shimei's got an axe to grind because some family matter. He's falsely accused. David always has these guys, a cluster of thugs going around with him, say, you want me to kill him? And David says, don't kill him because God has probably sent him to kick dust on me and curse me. Throw stones at me. Don't kill him. This is the reaction that godly people should have when people are against them. You know, in other words, step back and go, no, wait a minute. Here, okay, here I am. I'm Ken Pierpont. I deserve to be in hell. And I got somebody who's opposing me. God loves me. So God must be going to teach me something here. So God is using the Shimei, Shimei's dust against you. Don't whine and cry and complain and to Jesus who was tortured and killed for our sins. To accomplish what he accomplished, he had to die. You know, oh, I'm, you know, wah, wah. It was Bill, and I think it was your, maybe your brother, we were talking about ministering out in the public, out in the open air. And... Um, in Spurgeon's time, in lectures to my students, there, there is a section there about open-air ministry where people are going out witnessing. It was, some, it was an ugly business. One guy is telling a story about how he preached for the afternoon while a guy had a gun to his head threatening to shoot, pull the trigger. I'm like, I would have taken a coffee break at that point. Okay, while the, brother has, while the man has a gun in my head, I believe I'll be taking a little break. We'll come back later when conditions are more conducive to preaching. You know. And then the guy shot the gun over his head burned his hair. Another guy said, I got hit in the head with a rock, and it was very, a very bad injury, but he said it was good, though, because when I got hit in the head with a rock and the blood was running out of my head, everyone got quiet, and they finally listened to what I had to say, so it was good. I, I mean, I know you wouldn't want to do that, and that's all, that would just freak you out, but I just wonder, you know, did we witness last week anywhere? Just thought. Did you tell anybody about Jesus? Did you? Did you, did you take an opportunity to tell anybody about Jesus? I know some of you did. Some of you got the chance. So just a, just a thought. But, but it, I think it's interesting here that here you have God saying, I will move pagan kings. I will move my people. Nothing will stand in my way. But then the stuff gets halted by opposition for a while. And then he brings in a couple more preachers and they get it going again. It's like, this is the way God works. It's, just, it's, kind of a, it's, it's a beautiful thing to me to see that, I, I think. Uh, and, and it's a very helpful, helpful thing to see. That, that you're not going to do God's work without opposition coming. As a matter of fact, look in chapter 3. And um, this is a beautiful little part. Chapter 3, verse 10. The builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. I don't like the music parts, don't you? And, and Levites and the sons of Asaph, these were the worship leader guys, with cymbals. There's that percussion that we like to imagine is not there. To praise the Lord. Am I irritating you yet? Yeah. To praise the Lord uh, according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And now they're going to sing an old chorus. 
It's an old worship chorus that they've been doing for a long time. It's, for he is good and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Where'd that come from? First record that we have of that praise chorus is when they get the Ark of the Covenant returned to Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they sang. Second time they were singing that was in Solomon's dedication of the temple. And and now they're bringing this out. Everybody, oh yeah, I know this song. That's the greatest thy faithfulness song. We sing that when God is doing something. We're, we're, We're breaking out that hymn, that chorus. It's a little simple chorus. Then all the people shouted with a great shout. <laughs> and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers and houses and old men who'd seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. The old men wept and the young men cried. I'm sorry, the old men cried and the young men shouted for joy. So that the people could not discern the noise, the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people, for the people shouted a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. That's something. It's like a whole jumble of things going on here. I wonder if the old men noticed the absence of the Shekinah glory of God falling on this. And it made them cry. I wonder if they remembered how big the old temple was and what a small temple this was, and it made them cry. And the young men shouted because they hadn't seen that. But it was a glorious time because God had rebuilt, God had allowed them, God had ordained and sovereignly orchestrated the rebuilding of the temple. Now what are the very next words in chapter 4? Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that his sentence of captivity were building a temple, the Lord God of Israel, here came the adversaries. So don't be all shocked if it's not all smooth sailing for you and you're trying to live for the Lord and there are people who misunderstand you or people that just always been that way. But it doesn't matter because God is so powerful. He's so sovereign. He can work things out. He can use your enemies for his own purposes to do what he was going to do. He's always done it that way. That's how he works. This is a pretty cool part. So God stirs them up with joy. He gives the people a spirit of joy. Chapter 6, verse 22, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm giving all kinds of verses that show the sovereignty of God. They kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful. And he turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them. That's kind of just shocking. Assyria? These people are bad news. To strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the house of Israel. Now there's more. God controls the timing of events. Ezra 7 and verse 9. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according, and here comes the phrase that's like a special phrase, according to the good hand of his God upon him. If God puts his good hand on you, it doesn't matter who opposes you, he's doing something. You want that. That you want. You want God's hand on you. His hand of favor, his good hand, his generous hand. You want that on you. You're a young person, old, a lot. You want God's good hand on you. Uh, Things happen in the affairs of men that are determined by God. Ezra 7 and verse 23. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of God in heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? God stirs up pagan kings and leaders, as we mentioned before, in Ezra 7, 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who's put such a thing as this in the king's heart. See? It's like, wow, it's wonderful that the king thought that. No, the king didn't think of that. God put it in his heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. 
and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged. The hand of the Lord, my God, was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go with me. Some of you might think, well, Barack Obama's a good guy. Or Barack Obama's not a good guy. Barack Obama doesn't believe right about abortion. We know that, right? We know that. I mean, he's public on that. He's wrong on that, and we respect him, and we pray for him. He's, he's wrong on that. Um, he, he, he doesn't understand the, the Bible, and George Bush didn't really either. Uh, they, they, George Bush, uh, I'm reading his biography now, and it's a, it's a good read. It's interesting and in how, how he's delivered from alcoholism and, and how he had reverence for, for Jesus. But in terms of his knowledge of the Bible, it's just good he knew more about foreign policy than he knew about the Bible, or we'd have been in real talk soup. And it's the same with our president, Barack Obama. I'm not speaking evil of our president. But sometimes we, do, we just wring our hands and we go, oh, my goodness, you know, how can these people, look who's taken over the country, look who's taken over Congress, look who's in power. How can God possibly do what he needs to do with these people in power? Cyrus, my shepherd, he called him. He's going to do what God has him do. Now, that might, be, that might not be like cause for hilarity because it may be that what God is doing is he's given us leaders after our own hearts because we've rejected God and the judgment of God is going to come through these leaders. So it's not all like happy news. But, in, but God's going to raise people up and he's still in charge. In other words, no matter who's in power, God's really in power. That's what, what I'm saying. Now, in uh, Ezra <clears throat> chapter 8 and verse 18, Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. And then in chapter 8 and verse 22, For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy. You know, because I've been talking about how good God is. I didn't want to go ask a pagan king for help, he says. So he says then in chapter 8 and verse 22, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. And then in chapter 8 and verse 31, it says, Then we departed from the river, Ava, on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambush along the road. So God protected us because the hand of God was upon us. The hand is symbolic of God's strength and his favor and his blessing. So you see it over and over again there. You see how repeated that is? This is true, New Testament in John 19 and verse 11. We're, here, we're talking about a great, great, great doctrine of the Bible that we ought to sink our teeth into, and that is the doctrine of God's providence, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that he is in absolute control over everything. John 19 and 11, Jesus said, You couldn't have no power at all against me unless it was given to you from above. And in this beautiful passage in in Acts 17:26, it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and he determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He determined all of that. So here's some applications tonight. May God's good hand be upon us. This, let's go home with this desire. God, may your good hand be upon me, upon my family. To stir up our spirits to restore sincere worship and repent of sin as they did here. And you see that. God, would, you, would, you, would your hand be upon me to restore worship? Would your hand be upon me to move me to study and to do and to teach? This is a classic passage, chapter 7, verse uh, 10. Ezra, study, look at it. Ezra seven ten. This is a high spot in here. 
He comes to Jerusalem according to the good hand of God was upon him. For Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's the formula. You prepare your heart to seek the law of the Lord, then to obey the law of the Lord, and then to teach the law of the Lord, and then the good hand of God is upon you. And that's what we want. This is what our church is about. Amen? Let's, let's study the law of God. Let's practice the law of God. Let's teach the law of God. And, and this is, a, this is uh, I trust, what God has done in the past and will continue to do here. A final thing is, may God's good hand make us men and women who, like Ezra, grieve over sin and pray for the favor of God. And you see this throughout these, these passages here. I was a boy... I remember going to the jail one time with my dad and some other guys from First Christian Union Church. We're going to preach in the jail. And uh, I mentioned this before, but I'll tell you a little piece about this that might encourage you here as we go. But we went to the jail, and everybody gave their testimony. And the men, in, you know, you had to preach through this big door. There was just a little square window, and so you couldn't see the inmates. It's not good prison ministry. You, so they were especially abusive and vile, and they were breaking out profanities I didn't even know existed, and it was really shocking to me. And there's the good old guys from the Christian Union Church there just trying to be a witness, and they're, they're hollering their preachments through this little window, you know. And the guys are, you blankety-blank, get the blankety-blank out of here, you're, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is a different kind of preaching service than I've ever been involved. This ain't the rest home, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, my dad looks over at me, and he goes, Kenny, give your testimony. And I'm like, are you serious? It's like, so I remember going up there and standing on my tiptoes and hollering my testimony through the window. And I remember my dad coming over here, putting his hand on my back, in the middle of my back, and whispering to me and patting on my back, keep going, you're doing good. That's a good word. Stay with it. Come on, keep going. You just like almost feel his hand on my back today. And once in a while, I'll talk to my mom and dad, and they'll say, hey, we listened to your message. Don't tell embarrassing stories about us anymore. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't say that. Lois says that, but my parents don't. They, they're like, um, of course, they don't have to be present, you know, like my poor wife does. But they'll, they'll say, I heard that, you know. And what a wonderful thing is to have your father's blessing, his hand on your back and what you're doing. You may have that. You may not have that. But what Ezra is saying in this book is that God, our covenant-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping, sovereign God is willing to put his hand of blessing on our back. If we will study his law, obey it, and teach it, he will put his hand on our life, his good hand on our life, and bring to pass what he intends to bring to pass. And you ought to be able to feel the pressure of his hand on your back throughout all your life until you come to the end of that. May God encourage you. Let's stand together. I want to sing this little chorus again. I enjoyed hearing you sing it this morning. So let's go home together. Home tonight. I, waited, I went a little bit longer because I wanted to make sure the roads were clear for you. Now let's, let's, let's go ahead and sing.